This Guardian Family podcast is sponsored by Jump, the savings fund for children. To find out more, visit jumpsavings.com. Hi, this is Miranda Sawyer and welcome to the Guardian's Family podcast. In this month's show, how can you still love your dad when you discover he's a killer? Derek Bird's sons declared that they did even after he killed 12 people. I'll be speaking to a man whose father was also convicted of murder. Author and columnist Tony Parsons will be joining me in the studio to talk about bringing up a child when you're a single dad and the dilemma of family holidays. The children want fun and you want sun. Is it possible to have a holiday where everyone's happy? Relaxing holidays, I just don't think there are any once you become a parent. You half read a book, you have half conversations, you never quite finish anything and the only time you ever kind of have a moment of quietness is when they're asleep. And six music DJ, TV presenter and now author Lauren Laverne will be giving us her family playlist. This is the family podcast from The Guardian. So my guest this month is Tony Parsons. Yay! Hello, Tony. How you doing? I'm all right. <laughs> I'm all right, Sam. How are you? Good. good. <laughs> so uh, recently Father's Day. Yeah. Did you get anything nice? I, got, I did, actually. I got a, I got a straw hat. Oh, the hat you're wearing is lovely. It looks good on radio. And um, (laughs) that was from my daughter and my wife. So uh, thanks for that, girls. Yeah. (laughs) And how old's your daughter now? She's seven. And what's she like? She got her first electric guitar last week. So she's a a very... uh, Well, she's the most beautiful girl in the world. And she's very musical. And she's, um, she's great, actually. She's the love of my life. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, she's fantastic. And have you found it different? Because I know you've got an older son. Is it very different bringing up a girl? It's completely different. It's the big difference. The big difference is not having a kid in your 20s and having a kid in your 40s or having a kid when you're poor or having a kid when you're not not as poor. The big difference is having a daughter. That's the huge difference, and it changes your relationship with women. In what way? I'm intrigued. It's just um, you you um, believe in girl power in a way that you never really <laughs> did before. You want women to rule the world. You know, you're, you're, um, you're defensive about um, sexism in, in all its forms. I think it really does, really does profoundly, on some deep fundamental level, change your relationship with women. That must have been a shock for your wife. Yeah, she thought I was quite sim- sympathetic to women anyway, but apparently not. No, um, I think it. I think you. Um, yeah, it it changes you, especially you know, as a former boy. Suddenly you're a you know you're a poacher turned gamekeeper. You know, you're thinking about <laughs> you're looking ahead to the sort of sixteen, seventeen years, all the little creepos that are going to come sniffing around. You know, and now you're going to deal with them. Well, I know that you do uh, martial arts, Tony, so I'm sure you've got some moves. Yeah, but I might my my powers might be failing. You know, my old leg, <laughs> my knees might have been gone by then. To us, he was the nicest man you could ever meet. He was a loving dad and recently became a grandfather. He will be missed by us, his family and friends. That's part of the statement issued by Graham and Jamie Bird after their father, Derek, shot 12 people dead in Cumbria a few weeks ago before killing himself. What is the impact of such atrocities on the family, not of the victim, but of the perpetrator? Nick Castry is the son of Ronald Castry, who was convicted in 2007 of abducting and killing 11-year-old Leslie Molseed in 1975. He joins me on the line now from Manchester. Hello, Nick. Hello. Hello. Um, can you remind us of the circumstances around the case of how you exactly found out that your dad was a murderer? 
Yeah, on the 5th of November 2006, I got a, a knock on the door from West Yorkshire Police that uh, changed my life forever. They told me they'd arrested my dad on suspicion of the murder of a schoolgirl from 30 years ago, the Leslie Mulseed. And, uh, uh, I mean, obviously that's a, it's a shock, but it's also quite a strange circumstance, something that happened so long ago. Yeah, I mean, it happened four years before I was born. What help could I possibly give them? But they wanted to build up a, a background of the kind of character my father was. And also the, the, the other strange thing about the case was that somebody else had been convicted of the murder, hadn't they? Yeah, I mean, again, it's not just my family's lives my father's ruined, but, yeah, Stefan Kisko, a man that served many years for something he hadn't done. And what did you have to do for the police then in that situation? Spent hour after hour giving statement my whole life. All the skeletons that I'd buried had to uh, come out of the closet and uh, help us bring to trial, you know, my father's the case. And what kind of uh, dad was he when he, you were growing up? How old are you now? 31. So this, so it's only you were just coming up to 30 when you were approached by the police. Um, and what kind of dad was he when you were growing up? To the outside world, he was just, you know, every normal Joe blogs that everybody would probably want to uh, have as the dad. What they didn't realise going on behind closed doors was uh, he was a violent, volatile man. If he, if he wasn't beating us with his fists, he'd be beating us with psychological abuse. And was, was there just you? Did you have brothers and sisters? I'm the middle of three lads. It was psychological abuse with me. It was physical abuse to my uh, brother and to my mum as well. It was every day, every night, after school, weekends. And what do you mean by psychological abuse? It put put me down with words. It's it's those words that, that leave the scars that don't go away, the mental scars, telling you that you're hysterical, you need help, you need locking up, you'll never amount to much. It'd take, uh, make fun of my sexuality because I... I knew from a young age I was gay, and I'm proud of that. But he he armed in on that and found that as a weakness. But this was the man that I looked up to. He was my dad. I'd go to him to help me with my own work, you know, and I respected him. There's still something very, very different about having a difficult and possibly violent relationship with your father and discovering that he had murdered somebody. That's a completely... Uh, it's a it's a massive leap, isn't it? So it must have been a huge shock for you, despite if you know the psychological trauma that he inflicted on you when you were young. We left him in 1997 when my parents divorced. I always knew I could go back to him whenever I wanted to try and rebuild our relationship. And like I said, on the 5th of November 2006, that were taken away from me. I've tried to contact him in prison. He won't have anything to do with me. You know, and what does that tell me? You know, the bullied. He's trying to face the bully, but the bully won't face the bullied. Well, it sounds like he's still trying to control things, isn't it? Oh, goodness, yeah. I mean, he, he wrote to the local paper. He was wanting people to contact him to help him fight his corner. But he, when I contacted him, he wouldn't see me. I mean, I don't want answers to why he is where he is today. I won't get them. I just want answers to why he treated us like he did when he was growing up. I'm lucky enough to be able to possibly one day get those answers from him 
you know, the, these two lads that have got to go up with this terrible thing, what's happened in Cumbria, why I'm here today, they can't get those answers. Why the the dad's mind was take, taken to the darkness on the 2nd of June, my birthday, in fact. It won't go away for me. It happened on my birthday. And in that situation, uh, both, uh, Derek, both, both of Derek Bird's uh, sons have said that they still loved him, that he was a loving father and that they were mortified by the, the killings, but they still loved him. Did you find that the... You obviously had a very different relationship with your father, but did you find that the knowledge that he was a murderer changed that fe- those feelings towards your dad or not? As the days went on after his arrest, the police drip-fed us information of what he'd actually been up to behind the family's back. And I tried to hold on to the good memories and the respect I had for him, but those were shattered when I just realised just how many times he'd done terrible things to innocent children. It just shattered everything. The few good memories I had and the respect I had for him, it's gone now. That's a terribly difficult thing to, to have to face. I had to sit on the 12th of November 2007 and listen to the judge tear strips off me when he, when the verdict had come in and he had my dad stand up in the dock and delivered his sentence and what he'd done on that terrible day back in October 1975. It tore strip by strip off me. That was my life this person was talking about, you know, and... It's absolutely heartbreaking. However, it's, time is a great healer. It's true what they say. And a few years on, yes, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm a survivor. I'm not a victim. I don't want people to feel sorry for me. I want people to hopefully learn from me speaking out what I've been through, that I can survive it, that anybody listening to this interview today can also survive it. Don't suffer in silence. If anybody's doing anything to you that you feel is wrong probably means it is. Speak out and get help. Well, I wish you very great luck, and it's uh, very nice of you you to talk to us. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Tony, you were listening into that interview, which is very heavy duty, I have to say. But uh, as a a man who's written a lot about father-son relationships, that is pretty shocking. Well, they just, you know, your your parents throw a giant shadow over your lives, don't they, for, for, for good or for ill. And it's the luck of the draw, whether you get a good one or a, or an absolute nightmare like that. And um, and it doesn't go away, you know, it doesn't go... I mean, my, my dad's been dead for nearly 25 years now, but I'm still living with the man that he was and the expectations that puts upon me as a man and as a father and as a son. And I don't think it ever wears off, you know, it doesn't wear off. It's... Um, you know, I'm just, I'm sitting there listening um, just to this heartbreaking story, and um, to to discover that even in an abusive father like that, to discover that it goes beyond bullying and domestic abuse and domestic violence, to to, to discover that it goes beyond that into the the murder of some school girl. I just can't imagine. I mean, I just I just said nothing because. It's unimaginable to me. I can't imagine what it must possibly like be like. The only thing I can say is I know that um, fathers cast giant shadows across their son, and it doesn't. And you never really, you never really get out of that shadow. Whether it's a, you know, I've, my my dad's influence was a, a benign and benevolent and inspiring influence, and um, 
it's just the luck of the draw, really. And I think also particularly, I think you're right about fathers and, and sons, that relationship, it's what you live up to that is the, your first image of masculinity, which is obviously incredibly important. But also I think of a particular generation um, when it possibly was uh, more acceptable to bully your children, to be abusive to your wife. There's an entire, kind, you know, there's a lot of people that have been through that. Obviously not the extremes that Nick has been through to discovering his dad was a murderer, but the first when he was describing his home life, there were plenty of people who have been through that. Yeah, I mean, when Man and Boy came out, a, a number of people said to me that my vision of that old British nuclear family was very sentimental and um, optimistic and too hopeful that there was, you know, in those old families where people stuck together forever. You know, my parents were together from the age of 16 until my dad died. Um, you know, that there was a lot of abuse and there was a lot of people frustrated. A lot of people were you know, marriages to someone that they didn't love that happened to get pregnant and first time they had sex. And um, I can see that that's all true. I mean, my my parents were happy and were, to, you know, and it was a it was a happy, positive um, environment to to grow up to grow up in. Um, but I can see, you know, as I talk to people that of of my generation or generations that came later, I know that um, you know, for all the the faults of the modern world, there was a lot of suffering and misery in those old nuclear families but it was it was buried and, very much so yeah, yeah. And, and these days I think the wounds tend to be more visible and you can see you know exactly what the scars are and what the hurt is um, and I think in those old families you know you, you stayed silent for a lifetime it's also interesting I mean it's you know this is actually quite you know a perfect radio segue podcast segue into your works because because uh, not only is there, were the, was the kind of wounds of old family life hidden within that family, but actually the affection between the fathers and, and, their, and their children were hidden as well. And quite often, in your, particularly in your Harry Silver books, there's a reference to the fact that an older man would not tell his son that he loved him in the way that I'm sure that you tell your children that you love you, that, that a, gener- a generation later it mm. has completely changed. Mm. No, I, I said to one of my dad's old um, old army buddies once, you know, I only told him that I loved him once, you know, and I really and I really did love him. And I said only, you know, and he worked up the the nerve to tell him when he was like dying of cancer and shot full of morphine and couldn't really understand what I was saying. And um, and this old soldier said to me, you know, with a man like your dad, once was plenty, you know, that he actually didn't want me. Didn't want me coming up to him saying, who needs a hug? You know, so there's a balance to be struck, you know, between, I mean, I, I feel a lot physic, just physically closer to my son and my daughter than my dad was to me. I mean, he, I didn't, when I look back, you know, I mean, he worked six days a week. We had one meal together a week. It was a very old-fashioned working-class family that you had your, you know, we came home from work, we'd, you know, I'd, I'd eaten by then, I'd finished. Yeah. And it was only like Sunday Sunday dinner, which we didn't realise until years later was actually Sunday lunch. You know, it didn't, wasn't, wasn't clear to us until years later that actually our Sunday dinner was actually Sunday lunch. Um, that was the only <laughs> Don't meal worry, that we, mine too. <laughs> that, was the only, that was the only meal that we had together. And, um, so, and I kind of got it in my head. As time has gone by and I, you know, I've got a seven-year-old daughter and I try to spend as much time with her as possible. And I realise I think I can remember every kickabout I had with my dad. I can remember every football match I went to with him. I can remember every film that I saw him because there weren't that many. You know, it wasn't, um, we didn't do stuff at the weekends, you know, because he was working. He was either working or he was knackered. And just to recap, you've written, uh, you know, 11 books and three of which your first, well, it's not your first one, but the first big bestseller was uh, Man and Boy. 
and then there was man and wife and now this one men from the boys they all center around harry silver and essentially his relationship with his father now through now through uh, his friend but also with his son yeah. patrick who i relate to because my son is called patrick also and uh, and uh, in this in the latest book um he strikes up this relationship with an old friend of his dad but also his son is going through adolescence yeah the kid that was four in man and boys now 14 so yeah. you know he's gone from luke skywalker to you know drugs in the playground you know <laughs> and hopeless crushes on the school siren yeah know. on unsuitable girls yeah. <laughs> um you're interested in that interaction of generations though yeah. aren't you i mean the, yeah. the, the passing down yeah i mean is that but possibly because your father has gone and yeah, although, you know, really it was, um, I wrote Man and Boy when when my dad had been do- dead for a long time. My mum was dying and, and, I f- and my son was growing up and was just becoming a teenager. And I really felt, in a way that I've never felt before or since, poised between the two generations, you know. And I really felt those two roles pressing down on me, the role of someone's child and someone's parent, someone's son, someone's father. And I could only could only really written that book at that particular point in my stage uh, in, in my life and um you know but I do think it's endlessly fascinating and it is um you know when I look at my son's life and his, his experience you know it's not so different there's not that generational gap that there was between me and my dad you know my dad was um you know a teenager and fighting in Monte Cassino you know and I, I was like a young man and hanging out with the Sex Pistols and the Clash the sex and, um, <laughs> and um, it's not you know the experience of my son is not so different so um, I mean with Bobby's your son isn't he mm. how old is he now he's 30 he's not wow yeah, that's amazing yeah, yeah. so but you became a kind of single father to him when he was really quite young he was didn't four, you yeah. he was four yeah, yeah. and uh, I mean obviously that shaped your whole life and his yeah, I mean, it, I, it shaped his life more than it shaped mine. I mean, I think that, um, you know, as, as I say in the book, you know, it's it's not difficult to survive divorce for a grown-up. You know, for a man and a woman, it can be a positive experience, you know, that, you know, because we all fall in love with unsuitable people or, you know, just or just or suitable people for a short period of, of our life. Um, but it's different for a kid. And I do, it's one of my great regrets is that he didn't grow up in that kind of rock-solid mm family environment that I did because I think it just gives you confidence to go out in the world and it gives you a degree of um, trust in humanity which I think if you if you grow up with divorced parents I don't think you've got I don't think you've got because you you acutely aware of the fragility of everything yeah and um, I think if you grow up in in um, a solid family as as I did as my as my daughter is you sort of, you, you're quite, quite trusting and hope, maybe ridiculously so. You know, maybe you're too optimistic about the goodness of, of, uh, of people and, you know, the way that relationships endure. And I think when you've been, actually, when your parents have been through it and you think, wow, it can all fall to bits. It can all fall to bits. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to talk, talk about the kind of divorce element because it does come through very strongly in, your, in, in the Harry Silver uh, in the Harry Silver books. But I think that maybe you should read a bit for us all first. Right. Okay. Okay. This is um, this is this is about what we're talking about. I have this theory about divorce. I have this theory that it's never a tragedy for adults and always a tragedy for children. Adults can lose weight, find someone nicer, get their life back. Divorce gives grown-ups a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's the children who pay the price and pay it for the rest of their lives. But we can't admit that. All us scarred veterans of the divorce court, because it would mean admitting that we've inflicted wounds on our children 
that they will carry for the rest of their lives. So that little bit is kind of uh, yeah. I mean, I do I do believe that, and I think it's it's hard for it's very very hard for my generation of um, of um, crazy mixed up guys to uh, and gals to admit that you know to admit actually you know came out of that divorce quite well really you know and um, but the kid didn't. It's very it's a fantastically difficult thing to admit. The very fabulous Lauren Laverne is Six Music's weekday morning DJ, as well as being a TV presenter, music expert and extremely snappy dresser. After her husband encouraged her to write a book by telling her she was good at spelling, she's now the author of an ace new novel for teenagers called Candy Pop. Here's her family playlist. My first family track is Howling Wolf's Smokestack Lightning. Um, I was brought up in a house with a dad who's a, a well, music obsessive broadly, but um, very into kind of blues. And this song always makes me think of, well, always makes me feel safe because it reminds me, I used to wake up to this on Sunday mornings. My dad would be downstairs in the kitchen with this player and at full blast, peeling potatoes, uh, making the Sunday lunch. So this song makes me really happy. I also think Howlin' Wolf was probably one of the greatest performers of the 20th century and um, he was certainly, uh, I think, I think underrated. Although he, how, how, how he can be Howlin' Wolf and be underrated, I'm not quite sure, but somehow he is. He's on the list of contenders for uh, naming my new baby after him, although he's not going to be called Howling or Wolf. So <laughs> it's just a cl- that's just a clue. <laughs> But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I absolutely love love this song, and it uh, reminds me of my dad, and makes me very happy. My second track is "Here Comes the Sun" by the Beatles, and this is the song that well, it was my first dance at my wedding, so it's kind of the song I got married to. And I love this song because this is another song that I grew up with and always makes me think of my family. But then now it's sort of interesting when you have a piece of music that means a lot to you, but then you have a secondary experience to it that kind of eclipses the first. And my wedding was just just a really wonderful day. So um, obviously it's it's kind of like, got it's I don't know, it's almost gone warp speed with how meaningful this song is to me. I can't really listen to it without crying. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. My husband and I both hate dancing, really hate dancing, especially in public. Well, I don't mind it too much, but he really hates it. He used to be a DJ professionally and he actually became a DJ in the first place so that he wouldn't have to dance and could still go to clubs and raves and things. So when we had our first dance, the only problem was this this is, you know, a bit of a, a kind of goes on a bit, this tune. So we got my brother, who's a, a music producer and in bands and stuff, to re-edit it. So he took a minute and a half hours. So so that we would be spared the excruciating experience of slow dancing in front of our families. 
for the full five minutes or whatever it is. My third track is a song called uh, Bandits by Midlake, the band Midlake. And this is from an album called The Trials of Van Occupantha, which is a really beautiful record. This is the album that my son was born to. Sorry if that puts you off. I don't want to, you know, like ascribe an experience to a record that you then go, yeah, no thanks, Lauren, I'm all right. Um, but, but he was uh, not, not the grisly bit, just the early bit. Uh, sitting in the dark listening to this record was just really, you know, knowing that I was going to meet my little boy was such an exciting kind of feeling. Did you ever want to be overrun by bandits? To hand over all of your things and start over new. My oldest son keeps saying to me that he thinks baby brother is going to come when uh, there's a door in mum's head that and that is um, that opens up and that the baby brother then needs a ladder to be placed from the tummy to the head to escape. To be honest, I wish that was the case. Anyway, uh, it turned out to be not so bad the first time round, and I think a lot of that is because of this record. It's strange having kids of your own, and this sounds like a really obvious thing to say, and I suppose something everybody realises when they have their own baby, but... The yous that you have been throughout your whole life kind of link up. So I used to think of like me as a kid and then me as a teenager and me as a grown up quite separately. And of course, as soon as you have a child of your own, you kind of you see how how totally cohesive and ridiculously uh, continuous that the process of life is. And uh, it kind of links you back into all that stuff. Um and so it's funny, a few people ask because I've just written a book and people say, like, you know, well, why did you do that now? And I think really, largely, my book is about families and I couldn't have written it if I hadn't had one of my own. So it was more or less straight, you know, straight after I had my son that I started thinking about about writing. Um, and I wanted to write a book that was really about people, like, learning to be a family and learning how to... and, and finding their family. And so uh, that's what I've done. And Candy Pop is out now in all good bookshops and, of course, on the internet. Finally, it's time for your precious two weeks off. You've all been looking forward to your holiday all year and yet it never seems quite like the break you'd hoped for. What the kids want is to go swimming, go cycling, build sandcastles, play football, tennis, cricket... What they don't want is a relaxing meal or to lie in the sun or, I have to say, visit a museum. What's wrestle for you is boring for them. What's fun for them is torture for you. Can a family holiday ever make everyone happy? Family holidays, no, they're not relaxing whatsoever. The thought of them is quite relaxing planning them, booking them. But once you're there, it's a totally different thing. And if there aren't any other kids around, you are their entertainment for the day and the next day and the day after. When my children were under the age of six, we didn't go on expensive holidays because it just wasn't worth it. It wasn't relaxing. It was a lot of money and you came back home feeling more tired than when you went. This might sound rather bizarre, but actually I enjoy the kids So part of my relaxation, actually, is enjoying the kids when I'm on holiday because most of my day is filled with work and work activities. So actually, for me as a father, um, part of my my holiday fun is with the kids. Relaxing holidays, I just don't think there are any once you become a parent. It's You've always got your eye on the ball, you know, they're always looking out the corner of your eye. Are they there? What are they doing? Are they safe? 
you half read a book, you half have half conversations, you never quite finish anything and the only time you ever kind of have a moment of quietness is when they're asleep. And the only way you kind of have any time off is you just swap roles. You don't speak to your partner and your partner goes off with your child and then you have a moment of peace. And I think that's the only way that you have any time to yourself whatsoever. Joining me in the studio is Guardian columnist Madeline Bunting. Hello. Hi. Hello. So I need your tales. We need your help, Madeline. You've written quite a bit about your family holidays in the paper, haven't you? And you've had a ups and downs. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of tempted to say from the start, I can't offer any help. All I can <laughs> offer are tales. Um, so how do you make it work? Well, I think in the modern democratic family, I, where you think children should be involved in key decisions, it's going to be complicated. How old are your children? Well, they are now 15, 13 and 8. So and they have opinions. So they've had very strong opinions, inevitably, from a rather early age. And they decided pretty early on that Scotland suited them just fine. Now, I thought it didn't have enough sunshine and I got a little problem with the midges and uh, we couldn't ever find a house that I was prepared to sit in because I quite like nice houses. So it was a combination of three factors that made me think perhaps it was time to go abroad. And I'm afraid uh, we're back in Scotland this summer. <laughs> so what That's happened? the long and short of it. What happened on your trips abroad? Well, I think the problem is the reason why I say you can't offer help is because every family is so particular. And I have a daughter who can't bear the sun and actually really likes misty Scottish rain yeah. and wild moorland. I've got a son who's a mad tennis sport fanatic, loves climbing mountains. The bigger, the higher, the taller, the better. And preferably with scree and wants to fall down deep crevices and come out alive, you know, inevitably. So how do you combine that with an eight-year-old who's sort of, you know, loud and noisy and pretty much up for everything, really? And also, uh, I presume, a kind of mum who would quite like to lie on the beach occasionally. Oh, that's completely <laughs> impossible. I can't remember the last time I lay on a beach. But we, you see, I'm still looking for this holy grail. Do you think it's completely impossible? You cannot combine a relaxing holiday for parents and an, an exciting and enjoyable holiday for kids. Is that impossible? Well, I have done extensive research on this subject because I ask almost every parent I ever meet in September, you know, what did you do for your holidays? Did you manage to relax? And some of them say they've cracked it. And I'm always quite intrigued how they did it. And it seems to involve um, uh, going to large French campsites where there are loads of other children and the kids all go off and play yeah. and parents can then stay put and read. That's, that's the most read convincing. and drink rosé wine, exactly. I'd say. Exactly. So they sit there kind of having a nice relaxing time and the kids go off. Now, can you cope with a large crowd of camp, French campsite? I can't. No, there, there is that problem. The other thing I, you know, some people have suggested to me is why don't you go on holiday with other parents and their kids? And then, you know, presumably you can kind of go off and have a nice meal or have a nice day. But the problem is... You know, I mean, that's two weeks with people that you really might hate each other after kind of about three days. You know what? I've never managed that one. (laughs) (laughs) I've never managed the other family. We did do it once in Scotland in a croft in a very remote part of Scotland. So we were like, you know, 20 miles from anywhere. And well, uh, we managed just about. There were no fisticuffs. But, you know, it made you realise how all families have a kind of, you know, method of running themselves. And the idea that your family is going to mesh with another family's idea of running itself is kind of not high. So you end up having kind of arguments about when supper's going to be or when you're going to go for a walk or whatever. But also you've then got to really get on with everybody. The kids have all got to get on 
and the, the adults have got to go on. And I reckoned in the end it's just too complicated. You can probably manage about two or three days, maybe four, but any longer than that, I think getting all those relationships to work is so hard. You know, there's a bust-up between, you know, two boys. That's what happened to us. There was a huge bust-up and they wouldn't speak to each other for three days. I don't know what happened. <laughs> and this remote cross. <laughs> yes. That must have been fun. <laughs> So do you therefore accept that at the end of your two weeks away with your children, you will need a holiday? Oh, God, what a lovely idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The thing is, you, you do have a lot of fun. So it may not be very relaxing, but I don't think we need to be too miserable about this. You almost always have a lot of fun unless there's some big sort of, you know, trauma going on. Um, it's just you have to be, I think, incredibly accommodating. Very low expectations. I think the worst thing for a family holiday is going in with high expectations. Um, so if you've junked the idea it's going to be relaxing and you've junked the idea that everyone's going to love each other all the time, <laughs> so you just presume that there'll be a you know, fair level of bickering, there's going to be plenty of kind of teenage falling outs and just sort of go with the flow and make sure there's plenty of chilled white wine. <laughs> You'd be fine. You'll be fine. This is the answer. I think families can often work, going away with a sister and her family or a brother and his family, because there's so many kind of basic ground rules about how the family operates that you've both inherited. Yeah, and kind providing of the, Yeah, exactly. And providing the in-laws get on and you get on, you know, and the cousins get on. I mean, the, the most successful holidays with other families have been with siblings and their families. Uh, my brother's gay. I haven't got a chance. I'm gonna have, <laughs> he's going to have to adopt a child. <laughs> And he can't do a bit of childcare for you. He could do childcare, but I wish, that would really wreck his holiday. Do you know what I mean? Him and his husband off for a lovely time, and then we're going, by the way, we're here. Here, take the kids. See ya. <laughs> That's all for this month's family podcast. My thanks to Nick Castry, Tony Parsons, Madeline Bunting, and Lauren Laverne. Don't forget to read the Ace Family section in Saturday's Guardian for more family fun. From me, Miranda Sawyer, and my producer, Sarah Peters, goodbye. Now it's the next instalment of the Children's Guide to Bringing Up Parents, brought to you by JUMP, the savings fund for children. Today, creating clear boundaries. That's right, Becky. To ensure healthy development, parents have to understand there is a clear dividing line between right and wrong, and they must know what will happen if they cross it. Too true, Alexander. Take bedtime. Sending us off before 10pm is not acceptable, and neither is waking us up before 10am at weekends unless it's our birthday. Then there's the question of spending hours and hours in front of the computer screen. Most parents do far too much of this. However, they may spend as long as they like at jumpsavings.com, setting up savings accounts that will turn into tidy little sums for when we're older. Show your approval by praising them for it. Not too much, mind. You don't want to spoil them. Find out more about Jump, the savings fund for children, at www.jumpsavings.com. As Jump is an equity investment in Witten Investment Trust PLC, please remember that past performance is not a guide to future performance, and the value of your shares and the income from them can rise and fall, so you may not get back the amount originally invested. Issued and approved by Witten Investment Services Limited, registered in England number 5272533 of 201 Bishopsgate, London, EC2M3AE. 
Witten Investment Services Limited provides investment products and services and is authorised and regulated by the Financial Services Authority. Calls may be recorded for our mutual protection and to improve customer service.